This is Muslim in Plain Sight. I'm Anissa Khalifa. And I'm Khadija Khalil. Join us as we look back at 20 years of the war on terror and how our world changed as we came of age. And welcome. I'm Khadija. In this episode, we are delighted to sit down with Dr. Jasmine Ghani, a senior lecturer in international relations at the University of St. Andrews. Jasmine writes and teaches on colonialism, race, religion, US foreign policy, Syria, and the Middle East. Outside of university life, Jasmine has been working and organizing with grassroots communities, especially women of color, for over 20 years. In this episode, we talk about confronting the open and extreme hostility against Muslims that 9-11 precipitated, university life, being thrust into activism, and how we can find support and friendship in unexpected places. New episodes come out on Mondays every other week. If you would like to support the show, you can donate to us. Just click the link in the description. You can also rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or share your favourite episodes on social media. Please also tell your family and friends about the show. And now, take a seat by our fire and let's go back to 2001. Assalamu alaikum, Khadija. Wa alaikum salam, rahmatullah, Anissa. Today we're really excited to welcome Dr. Jasmine Ghani. Assalamu alaikum, welcome. Jasmine, we are so excited to have you. Jazakallah here for joining us. So in the interests of full disclosure, I should say that Jasmine and I have been friends for a very long time. So long that Jasmine remembers prickly 11-year-old embarrassing Khadija. And, ah! <laughs> and if you remember that last episode, I mentioned the four hijabis I went to school with. Well, Jasmine was one of them. She was my senior. And we had our lunchtime club every day of running away to pray in the music block. Which, which... makes it sound a little bit like we would sing. We didn't sing in our prayers. That's hilarious. And also, I'm like super jealous that you had like school friends that were actually Muslim and were religious and that you could pray with because that's really nice. It was definitely a huge blessing. We were the only ones. I was the only one. I was the only I was the one like I had like maybe like one other Muslim girl at the same time as me, but she was not religious. And uh, so I was only hijabi until my senior year when I had, there were a couple that came in. But yeah, that is Allah really was with me. Seriously. To be able to get through secondary school without. Alhamdulillah. So yeah, but Jasmine abandoned me at a point and went off to university because I guess she had to. She couldn't stay so with rude. me forever. <laughs> <laughs> and so by 2001, you were at uni. But can you tell us a little bit about who you were? On the 10th of September, 2001. On the 10th of September, I was um, at university. I was a history undergraduate at King's College London, and I was about to enter my second year of university. And our non-UK listeners might not realise this, but university holidays and term times sort of fall a little differently to outside of the UK. So you would have 
started your second year of university at the end of September in 2001. Yeah. So 9-11 actually happened a few weeks before you started your second year, right? Exactly. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. So could you tell us about the moment that you realized that 9-11 would mean something different for you than for people who are not perceived to be Muslim? Mm. So I remember that I was visiting a friend. Two of us actually went to um, see her. She had just been on a trip to Umrah and um, then Jordan. And she came back and we went to see her and she was telling us about the pilgrimage and her adventures right in the Middle East. And she had brought back some gifts. And it was actually a really wholesome, lovely afternoon. And um, towards the end, when we were about to leave, uh, she had received a message from her aunt where she said, oh, there's been some really awful incident in the United States. And she didn't have the full information. And so she thought there had been two planes that collided. Um, so it just sounded like a really tragic accident. And we hadn't seen any of the news. Um, so we just expressed how sad it was. And then we left. And so I went home, wasn't really aware of how the news was picking up pace and the kind of narratives that were developing um, at the time. And then switched on the news and everything started to unfold. To be honest, as somebody who was very conscientious about keeping up with current affairs, and I was just paying attention to it as an observer, obviously shocked, obviously very sad, but not fully aware yet in terms of what this would mean for Muslims. But as the evening wore on, because of course we are some hours ahead um, than the US, so by the time some of the details started to unfold, it was already quite late in the evening here in the UK. And then some names started to get mentioned, like Osama bin Laden. Mm. Who, by the way, we were already, well, I was certainly um, familiar with who this was because his name had come up years before in the news. He was mentioned quite frequently as this threat to the United States. He had been seen as one of the culprits on numerous other occasions where there had been bombings in other countries. So his name was not unfamiliar. So when that started to crop up in some of the news stories, it started to dawn on me that this was going to go in a certain direction. But then I decided to turn into the radio and listen to the talk shows across the various stations. And the radio stations were taking in phone calls from members of the public. And that's when it really became apparent because it was just mm. call after call after call of people expressing their deepest hatred and suspicion of Muslims. And by that stage, you have to bear in mind that throughout the 1990s, there are various events that would stigmatize Muslims, right? Whether mm -hmm. it was the issues in Israel-Palestine, whenever there were any kind of attacks there, also the Oklahoma bombing. Initially, there was an assumption that these were Muslims that had done this. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Um, so there was you know, the attacks and strikes on Iraq. Um, so there was all sorts of issues that had already emerged that I was conscious of the stigma that Muslims would always be facing. But you're aware of it and it's latent, but to hear people voice it in such a raw wave and of course, when they were expressing their feelings and their thoughts on the radio, there was also from the radio stations and the people that were calling in and the broadcasters that there were no Muslim listeners, right? It was wow. as if that this yeah. was for a domestic 
non-Muslim audience. And so everyone is very, very open. There was no limit to what people were saying about Muslims. And I just kept on listening through the night, you know, into the early hours. And of course... That must have been horrible. Oh my God. It was horrific, right? It was just hearing what people think about you and your community Mm. with no restraint at all. These are really raw emotions that people are letting out. And the, the hosts of the radio stations were joining in. And then as I was listening, I remember thinking, somebody, please, somebody call in and show some balance. Did you call in? No, of course not. Absolutely not. I mean, I was only... Why, why do you say, of course not? Because I was 19 and you wouldn't call in when you're hearing person after person just yeah. is, is vitriolic. It's a hostile environment. But the reason I mention that is because a few years after that, people did begin to call in and there were like coordinated efforts. I remember that you would actually have um, organizations who would provide people sort of scripts and things that they can say. So when something would come up, they'd be like, you can call in and this is what you can say. But it takes time to organize that kind of response, right? Yeah. In, in the moment. And especially considering how, and I don't mean to, I don't presume to explain what it was like for you, Jasmine, but I do remember like here, there was this feeling that like, we wouldn't have dared in those first few days to talk about how we were being victimized. It was like, you couldn't say that because it was all about the people who had obviously, I mean, very tragically been killed, but it was like, who even cares about you guys right now? You know what I mean? I mean, I think that point about would you phone in, I mean, this was a time when everybody was in a state of shock. Yeah, that makes yeah. a lot of sense. So, and then secondly, this, as I think Anissa mentioned, it was a very hostile space. And thirdly, why it was not up to me as a 19-year-old to call in when there's a bunch of middle-aged men mm. <laughs> calling in on these radio stations at 1 a.m., 2 a.m., 3 a.m. Yeah, morning. yeah, exactly. So I was just sort of listening and it was initially numb, hearing what people were saying and then realizing this is going to have a huge impact on all of us. So I think What was particularly difficult is that we weren't, as Muslims, allowed to process something that was an incredibly traumatic and shocking event globally for people that were seeing that anyway, right? Because it was very visual. Mm -hmm. Um, So, of course, it's not that what happened on 9-11 was somehow worse than awful events elsewhere Mm -hmm. in the world. But, of course, there was a a particular narrative about it and we were seeing it on screen in real time. Mm -hmm. So we weren't really able to come to terms with that shock. And then we are having to immediately think about the implications it might have on us and also realizing, oh, this is how much people hate us. And it was, I think it was Fajr, right? So dawn came, did my prayers, went back to listening because it was just this, it was compulsive in a way. It's like, what else are people going to say? Let me hear the full extent because really we don't get that opportunity. Mm. Um, Even when you get vitriolic articles in newspapers, it's still filtered to some extent, right? They would have had to have thought about what they're going to say, what kind of impact they want to have, whereas this was really raw. Mm -hmm. So it was people's real deep feelings Mm. and it was a free-for-all as well. So I think by the time... In the morning arrived, I was completely, of course, hadn't slept at all. But then when I switched off the radio, I think I started to process it. And then just it came in waves of that realisation of this is something different um, from some of the things that we've seen before. And this is going to be huge. I'm struck by what you said about there being no limit to what people were willing to say, because that's something that I also felt was different from before 9-11. It's not like that 
hatred wasn't there. It's not like we didn't see it expressed in the kinds of bias in reporting in the media and in the kind of questions that people would ask us about, like, why are you wearing that on your head? Those kind of things. It's not like we didn't know that people had prejudices against us and that we were, you know, that we didn't face racism. Of course we did. But it was like suddenly everyone had permission to say the worst things about us. Mm. Um, And it was just kind of understood that no one would stand up for us and nobody would call them out for it. And it was totally fine for us. But also that we didn't deserve to be stood up for. Yes. Right. We weren't entitled to any kind of protection. It's like, this is not your time. Yeah. And actually it was... It wasn't just no one else has a right to speak up for you. And, you know, at the time, I'm sure there were people that didn't agree with some of the things that were being said, but those voices absolutely categorically did not exist in the public forum. Yes. It was you weren't allowed to even express any sympathy for the fact that there might be this huge backlash against Muslims or they're all being tarnished with the same brush. And it was not just a hatred, but it was a sheer falsehoods that were being said about Mm. what Islam was, what Muslims believed in. And then it it quite swiftly turned to, they are amongst us. Mm -hmm. They are living here. This is what's going to happen because we've allowed them to be here. And so I think the first, um, as you had mentioned, the university semester started towards the end of the month. Um, So it was a couple of weeks before term started. I think the first week or so after realising this is what the public perception is. Mm -hmm. I know most Muslims that I knew did not go outside because there were already stories about attacks and reprisals um, that were taking place. I already had a prior commitment for that weekend to go away and travel with some friends. And I... I went ahead with it, but I remember when we stopped in the service station and it was really interesting seeing, I mean, part of it might be my own perception of what I was reading into the way people were looking at us, but it's a bit like what you said, Anissa, whereas before, you know, you'd be used to people staring at you because you're wearing the hijab and they think you're weird Um, and looking at you with a sense of mingled curiosity and bafflement um, and deep suspicion <laughs> not so much so before not so yeah. much a deep suspicion just more case of like you, you know, why would you do that why are you here well, yeah what's your what's your deal <laughs> kind of thing yeah exactly and, and perhaps more of a generic racism yeah right as well mm, yeah. not always I mean but you know you're already conscious of that yes. and it's there mm. at the back of your mind and you sort of learn to live with it but that on that occasion the the way that people looked at us when we stopped to refuel it was different it was a case of well we didn't know what you were before we just found you odd whereas now we know what you are we know what what you're about what you believe in and what you're capable Mm. of and it was a clear look of you shouldn't even be outside how do you have the audacity to have left your house wow to be out here in public don't you know what you've done, right? So there was a very clear sense of that. <laughs> it was just wherever we went, you know, when we were going through the shops, completely hushed around us, sort of a set so of tension and silence. Yeah. I'm a little shocked, I have to say. Like, I, I know that that was happening here, but there was so much nationalism in that of like, how dare these people attack America? And it was about how America had been, you know, I mean, you've heard it all, I'm sure. Enough of our media gets put out throughout the whole world that people have heard that kind of line of like, 
you know, we're the best country in the world and how could anyone do anything to us? So there were definitely, I mean, we were hearing about people getting killed and beat up and our mosques were getting death threats. But like, I am mm. surprised that it, the effect was so immediate, even in the UK. And I think we have to remember as well that apart from the government at the time, how closely it mm. aligned itself mm. with the Bush administration, the words that Tony Blair used literally was, we'll stand with you shoulder to shoulder. Mm-hmm. So he was one of the first of the um, world leaders that came out to give unconditional support um, to the United States, not just sort of an emotional support, but also a, a practical support. You know, whatever the United States would choose to do to react to this, Britain would stand by them and support them. So that would have aided that. And it was a strong Labour government at the time. Tony Blair was very successful in the elections, so he had the popular vote. So he had, there's a degree of, of influence on the popular mood from just the position of the government. But also this comes off the back of a decade of real cultural hegemony from the United States mm. that I think younger people growing up now, it's, it's so normal to be critical of the United States. But at the time... It was, you know, the United States could do no wrong. Oh, yeah, I definitely remember that. It was, um, yeah. In terms of just how powerful popular culture was and, and, and shaped the um, discourse in terms of media, in terms of education, even in terms of the politics. So, yeah, I think there was a huge knock-on effect partly because of that. But also there was a sense of this isn't just the United States as a whole. This is our, these are our values that are being attacked. It's Western civilization that's being attacked. Right. Western liberal democracy and all of the values that they hate and want to get rid of. Yeah. So what kind of impact did that have on your campus experience once you did go back to university? That's a really good question. So as I mentioned that the first week or so was this processing shock, I think, coming to terms with, as we mentioned, this is how people view Muslims, kind of had a sense of it, but now it's really blatant, listening to these awful talk shows uh, on mainstream media, right, where just a level of ignorance about Islam and Muslims and having the worst spokespeople to respond. They had a handful of Muslims that the media used to go to again and again. Mm. They were deliberately controversial, right? They were chosen because of that. It's just real frustration that there was no representative Muslims and we, as a community, we were not prepared for this. Like, who would be? Why would you be prepared for this? But um, I was actually, that year, had been given a response, well, voted to have the responsibility of being one of the heads of the Islamic Society. Which is the MSA equivalent. Oh, okay, okay. We call them ISUCs here. Exactly. So they'd have two heads. So that would be like the Muslim student club at your university, right? That's right, yeah. It's like any student union society. It's an opportunity to provide a community to Muslims on campus, perhaps uh, interfaith activities, but also to provide a social basis for Muslims that felt they wanted to connect to their identity. And sometimes you do like affiliate with other societies, co-organize events. So I was one of the, the heads. And of course, at the beginning of the academic year, you know, the first thing you do is you're preparing for Freshers' Fair and Freshers' Weeks, which is really intense. There's lots of activities. And, you know, before 9-11 happened, we had all of these activities planned and how to welcome new students and what kind of events we're going to co-organise with other societies. 
And all of that just, we had to change everything. Mm. So are you saying like the other student societies and stuff sort of left you out to dry? Pretty much so. Wow. <laughs> you would want to associate with the Islamic society in that context. That's dark, man. It was so soon after 9-11. Wow. Like, yeah. And so also with Freshers' Fair, I remember we we arrived and so we had a committee of people, of course. And uh, some of the members of the committee were friends of mine, friends that I'd made in my first year and saying, oh, you know, would you like to help out? Would you like to join in with this? And it was it was something that would be fun and enjoyable for them to be a part of, right? And also to gain some skills, organizational skills, leadership skills, all the kind of things that you sell being involved in any kind of student union society as. And of course, after 9-11 happened, the challenge was all would any of them want to continue to be associated with something like that? And some of them actually, their parents were really worried mm. that to be connected with anything overtly Muslim on campus is going to somehow incriminate them. Mm. Um, so anyway, we arrived for Freshers' Fair and we had to sort of set everything up and we <laughs> saw each other and we all looked terrible, right, because it had been listening to watching the news like 24 hours um, around the clock and also in some kind of a state of, of grief and trauma as well. And we didn't even have to say anything to each other because we knew, because we just implicitly knew what we had all been going through. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we just kind of nodded at each other. And, and to be honest, that was the moment where, for me, it was the bit where you have to just process what this is going to mean for us and how awful this is for us was over. And now the work started. Um, so it was from there onwards, really, my entire sort of campus experience was just one of necessary activism. And even that day, I remember sort of getting a glimpse of what it would be like, because every single person that passed by our school, um, well, there were those who just gave us some really dirty looks mm-hmm. or would openly make comments about um, Muslims. Um, but there were... Others who, they did stop, and the first question they asked was, how can Muslims condone what happened, you know, the attacks um, on the Twin Towers, and it's just constant. Pretty much every single person would be asking us about this, and how did we justify it, and what do we think about it? And so I remember just feeling quite protective about everyone else in the committee, because as I mentioned, some of them, you know, they were volunteering their time. Some of them, this is like their first experience of any kind of organizing. Mm-hmm. So I remember we printed out the verse from the Quran that says, if one person is killed, then it's as though the whole of humanity was killed. And if one person is saved, we save a life. It's as if we've saved the whole of humanity. We just printed that out and we put that above the school. And after that, anyone that would ask about the event, we would just point to that because we were drained. We did not have the energy to have these cyclical conversations justifying the fact that we didn't condone terrorism we weren't terrorists but there were people as well who because of what had happened and might not have shown any kind of interest at all wanted to know so wanted to know more about Muslims and wanted to know how it felt for us and how we were dealing with it and of course some Muslims would walk by as if they didn't even notice at all because there's that whole thing about I do not want to associate with Mm. being a Muslim because of the impact it's going to have on me which I completely understand yeah but there are others that their face would light up because they suddenly realize okay that I'm not alone Mm. there's a community here where I can connect to and because I can only imagine if for a first year starting university 
after an event like that would have been much worse. Yeah. I have to say, like, I started uni the year after that, and I basically followed you <laughs> to King's as well. But you on the and campus, you on the science campus. I was, but you also remember that I was always running over to your campus. <laughs> Having you guys there, I can't overstate enough how much it helped knowing you you personally were there because the sense of care and being taken care of like I felt that so strongly on your campus and Mm -hmm. like that sense of and maybe this is just because I'm your junior and I've looked up to you since I was like 11 but Mm -hmm. (laughs) that you know just you know Jasmine's at Strand I'm gonna be (laughs) there what are you talking about I think I, I would say, I mean, I have to pay tribute to the absolutely incredible group of sisters and mm. friends we had there. Yeah, the ISOCs in those years were so, so supportive, amazing and strong and active, like so active. And I don't think it's a coincidence. Yeah. I don't think it's a coincidence yeah. in terms of the timing, mm. right? So the, And the thing is, what I really remember about that group, um, who, by the way, I'm really close friends with all of them still. And the friendship hasn't changed mm. over the years. It's if Yeah, anything, because when you go through something together like that, there's no other way. That's it. It's like, you know, in Harry Potter, where after they battle the troll and they're like, you come out and you can't. I can't believe you mentioned Harry Potter. I'm sorry. So you know what I think about. <laughs> you've, been in the, you've been in the trenches together. Right. We're not going on a Harry Potter okay. tangent. <laughs> we are not. But um, Harry Potter is one of those series where the protagonist is deeply unlikable and yet we have to stick with him the whole way through the series. <laughs> Anyhow, the, um, the, the sisters, the friends that we had at the time, um, the, the interesting thing was is that we came from very different backgrounds, mm. all different nationalities, cultures, but also in terms of uh, political views and uh, sort of fiti views mm. right, in terms of the Islamic practice their family backgrounds. So some were very practicing, some uh, less so, some who were from a Shia background and others who are from a Sunni background. There are those who, I mean, so Muslims all know mm. these terminologies, tablighi, um, ISB, mm. um, Ikhwani background, Sufi, <laughs> yeah. Salafi background. And all of that so melted away, yeah. It was all represented. And I wouldn't say actually even melted away because when we'd have to have some of these sort of urgent committee meetings to respond to something of a, you know, something that would arise, and there always was, right? So many things would come up. So, but when we'd have these committee meetings and I'd ask them each for their opinions, they would give from their, those perspectives. And the beautiful thing was is that when you brought those together, it produced such a balanced decision. Um, so I was actually, it wasn't that it, those backgrounds melted away. I was so grateful for the fact that they were bringing those different perspectives and opinions into the decision-making. So, yeah, it, we are very close, um, but not just those on the committee. I think that that sense of responsibility for those who would be feeling ostracized on campus, who'd be feeling victimized, who'd be experiencing perhaps racial abuse or just a sense that their, their identity was under attack, right, from everything that's happening that we're reading about in the news, yeah. to just provide a space where they could feel safe and where they could feel that they didn't have to apologize for who they were. And so we used to, all of us are very committed, we used to make sure that there was never a time or as much as possible that the prayer room would be completely empty. Wow. So we'd try and find ways of rotating 
people would come on shift, right, when their lectures would finish. And if they had work to do, they'd do it there, just in case if somebody came in, that there was a friendly face to welcome them, that they felt that this was a place that they could find community. And it made a difference, I think, and it was really necessary. But what was also weird was that we started to have to also make sure that we protected ourselves. So I clearly remember the time. So imagine if you had somebody who wasn't even a Muslim come to the program. We used to get that quite a lot. Really? So because they would want to, especially as the weeks progressed. So in the immediate aftermath, you didn't, it was just very raw. But slowly, and there are other events, there are global events that started to happen and that shifted the, the conversation, right? So I'm talking about the invasion of Afghanistan, and then the ratcheting up of the, the drums for war against Iraq. So you had more people who were asking critical questions about this narrative that they had been fed and, and, and realizing perhaps not everything that we'd heard about Muslims was entirely true because look where it's leading. And so we used to get more people coming to just um, see if there's anyone in the program that'd be willing to answer some questions in a very sincere way. And we really wanted to be able to make them feel they could ask and to not feel that um, somehow is offensive if they were mm. expressing some of the things that they had heard from the media. So we wanted it to be welcoming. But there was, I remember uh, when someone came in, we, we gave her that welcoming treatment. And as the conversation went on, we realized she was a journalist. Oh, oh. And that she had actually come to find out if we had any extremist links yikes wow. um, what our opinions were on this particular person or this particular issue and eventually we started to sort of turn the questions on her a little bit like as politely as possible and she had to say you know which media organization she was with and that she had been sent to write an article wow. so there are a few situations like that so it was if you think about it how young we were mm. and that's something I have to remind myself is that's just so such a formative stage of your life and then you've got this space that you try to make a safe space because it felt like you were besieged outside of it which is the prayer room yeah and it's a place of prayer and then you're wanting to also welcome those who aren't Muslims into that space as is obligatory on us in our Islamic faith mm. right it's such a breach of trust right yeah. where then you're having to also think hold on a minute why is this person asking questions and like it violates the safety of that space right precisely Absolutely. pushing for details so then it was really unfair right because instead of being really open and wanting to just share with anybody that we felt wanted to know more about our community or more about islam we just had these critical questions that they wanted to ask we now had to be on guard about mm. is this a journalist <laughs> right is this, yeah are they trying to fish for information about mm, us yeah or entrap you in some way yeah exactly it's kind of like what we were talking about in our most recent episode mm. of how like it was this dual kind of weird thing where on one hand everything that you used to consider sacred and private was being violated and invaded in a really upsetting and traumatic way while at the same time you were being pushed so far outside of who is considered us and like the nation and our people and just kind of mm. pushed out. So you're like being pushed out and brought close mm. and both of them are in horrible ways. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think there's a lot of that and realizing as well that for some people, the event would have made them see or connect to their identity in a completely different way. 
even questioning mm. whether they wanted to be associated with something that was treated with such vitriol. And so that the way people would be reacting to this would be very different. And like I said, there are some that they had to keep it a secret that they're even going to the prayer room from their parents wow. because their parents were so worried for them. And understandably, it's not an overreaction mm. because there were people who were being detained because of activism just based on the merest, tiniest of suspicions. And so they were hearing about these things from their communities. So uh, I understand the fear. So it was just recognizing people coming with so many different backgrounds and different fears. And But what I would say is sometimes we can, it can feel just so awful and it was and it must have been. But as I said, for me, I think that I was just kept so busy and the sense of responsibility in a way, I think it allowed me to channel everything that would have been dumped on our shoulders via the event itself and then all of the narrative and everything we're hearing. And I'm quite grateful for that, actually, because if mm. if I didn't have that, then I don't know. Like being busy allows you not to dwell on it, right? Yeah. And as well, you have to dwell on it because the reason why you're busy is because of this thing that's happened. Mm. To you. As, but, in, as in dwelling on it in a way that prevents you from being able to continue living. Kind of, yeah, taking all that emotional energy and putting it somewhere instead of just mm-hmm. having it sort of eat away at you yeah that's it yeah because I was constantly thinking about it and reflecting on it in multiple ways and even it was it was interesting that so via the activism work I mean that's a weird word we never even used that at the time I think it's become trendy now but not sure what else to call it of course when the invasions started which wasn't not that that long after that was in a way it was awful and as Muslims we are taught that when not just of the Muslim community, but any part of humanity where they suffer, they're being oppressed, that it's like you're one body. And if one part of the body is suffering, then the whole body feels it and is in a state of fever. And it felt like that. Yeah. It felt like that. So I know sometimes there might be this response of like, oh, well, that you were just experiencing the, the racism and the discrimination, but there are people who actually were suffering from bombs and you know, invasion and, and death um, and being detained or kidnapped. Yeah, of course, of course. I There's no way that we can compare what we were going through and what um, those people were going through, but they're not disconnected. Yeah. Right? So the sort of dehumanization that could happen at home and the discrimination that could happen at home sort of paves the way for the public to accept those types of foreign policies that have far even greater impact abroad 100 percent, right so there's that but also just feeling the impact of what's happening abroad and like you know what can we do and feeling helpless about it so there was all of that associated with when the the invasions began in afghanistan but it also triggered of course the uh, emergence of this anti-war coalition and that was the first time that you started to hear not much at all, but a few voices that were critical of the United States mm-hmm. and were daring to push back, who were not just from the Muslim community. Mm-hmm. And it was so important to start realizing okay, we are not completely alone. Um, and there are people who are now 
willing to stand with us mm. right, against this particular issue, against these foreign policies that were taking place. Are you talking about the Answer Coalition or was there something different where you were? It's so an anti-war coalition. It was like a whole movement. That was the name of it? Yeah. Oh, okay. was, it, was it not the name of it? it? Was, um, well, it was only by the time of the Iraq war. Oh my goodness. And then you know, not to mention while you're dealing with all of this, you still have to go mm. to school and, you know, pass your classes. And I'm sure that you did more than just pass them because mashallah, like you ended up entering academia. So did you originally plan to go into post-colonial studies, um, Middle Eastern studies? Is this something that has anything to do with what you experienced post 9-11 in your like student life and just as a person in the world? That's a really good question. I mean, in terms of the impact it had on my studies, I was somebody who I enjoyed my studies. I sound like a nerd now, but I was really passionate about it. I loved history. I actually loved it. No, no, I'm the same way. So (laughs) we're all nerds here. So, you know, no judgment. You're in good company. I I loved going to my lectures, right? I enjoyed reading and quite uh, quite diligent in handing all my essays on time. We had a system there at King's where it was, uh, we had weekly essays. So it was quite intense. And with this, my second year was just not the way that I would have wanted to be a student, right? In the yeah, sense of course. That, and trying to juggle all of the stuff and the anti-war protests that are happening every week, sometimes multiple times in a week. So we're organizing for that as well. And there was just so much happening. Trying to keep on top of my studies was, yeah, it was really hard. And at the time, that particular term, and I think this is from Allah, it was such a blessing, actually. I was in a, we call them supervisions, and it was either two students to one tutor or one-on-one. And I had this one-on-one supervision every week. That was my class with, his name was Conrad Russell, and he was a peer in the House of Lords. Any relation to Bertrand Russell? His son, actually. Oh, okay. Wow. His son, yeah. yeah. And he was an expert on early modern Britain and particularly the English Civil War. So you'd think nothing to do with, you know, modern history or United States, Middle East, 9-11. And he was quite elderly. And obviously, I just sort of, you'd make certain assumptions, right, that he's a part of the establishment. And how would he react to seeing Muslim women in hijab, and especially with everything that's happened? So I was a little bit nervous. And the first uh, time when we had to meet all of his students and set times for our supervision we had set a particular time for my supervision and as I was about to leave he called me back and at the time Khadija don't know if you remember but actually Ramadan was around that time yeah yes and he called me back and he said Jasmine is, is this an iftar time shall we change the supervision oh, time wow. so that you can have your iftar oh, <laughs> it was just so nice he, completely unprompted without me mentioning anything and he offered this, and um, it was such a kind thing to do. And so we'd have these supervisions, and I'd have to take my essay along and read it. So if I hadn't done it, and just like I said, I wasn't the kind of person that would not do my work on time, but this was <laughs> happening because of 9-11. Of course, yeah. <laughs> and, and so it was just, it was very understanding, but he was, a, yeah, I remember he'd sit there, and he was a chain smoker, and at the time, you were allowed yeah. to smoke inside. <laughs> So in this tiny office, it just suffocating. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> and 
I'm allergic to Oh gosh, yeah. And here I was, having to read out my essay <laughs> without choking. Oh gosh. And while, you know, Professor Russell was puffing away in front of me. And he was all, oh, bless his soul, he used to look like he'd fallen asleep. Bless him. So I didn't even know if I should carry on. I thought was going on. And then he just sort of stopped in the middle of me reading my essay. And he'd say, very good point. So that's interesting. We'll pick up on that later. Or if I'd stop because I thought you'd fallen asleep, say, do carry on. <laughs> it's just a very weird, interesting experience. But the, the thing that, that was just me throwing that in because it was interesting. But he, every now and again, he used to mention things we're talking about from the 16th century or the 15th century. And he would make a particular point that it was absolutely clear that he was speaking about our current situation. Mm. And it was he was speaking against the Blair government and its policies. Or he was saying something that, to me, felt quite obviously a way of comforting or reassuring me or as the Muslim community and explaining that these are things that had happened then. And these were the... the retaliation and retribution against minority communities was happening then and he would phrase it in such a way where it was very clear that he was trying to offer support and he was very old school so I don't think he felt it was right to just sort of impose that conversation about the current context on me but I very much felt that's what he was doing when I look at that and realize that I mentioned the activism but also actually my studies even though it was affected in my ability to focus and, and do the work and spend the time I needed to on it, that it offered a really reassuring refuge um, because I focused purely on British and European history. And Anissa, you asked, did 9-11 have an impact on, on what I chose to focus on? I deliberately did not take any courses on the Middle East. Mm. And that was shaped by partly 9-11 because I knew with everything that we were going through and having to deal with and all of the misunderstanding and the narratives we're hearing in the media and people around us just generally did I have to put myself through that again in class right and I, I, I loved and enjoyed studying and I didn't want to taint it in that way so mm-hmm. I thankfully in that time I was able to attend lectures and classes that seemingly had nothing to do with what was happening um, around us at the time but of course history there's always going to be connections mm-hmm. that can be made as I mentioned with that class absolutely uh, so it wasn't that it was completely disconnected but I was able to read between the lines or sort of make those connections myself give yourself some distance yes yeah I totally understand what you mean because there was a time well actually I don't think that time has really ended I know in the U.S. I'm sure it's very similar in the U.K. a lot of these like Arabic classes classes about the Middle East, classes about politics in the Middle East, religion classes. There was this particular kind of like white bro that wanted to go into law enforcement or national security or... Baby feds, as Willow called them. Yeah, they wanted to go and be a part of the CIA or whatever. They wanted to like go kill people like us. And I did not take any of those classes because I refused to be in a room with those people Um, and to kind of have to be exposed to the rhetoric that they would impose upon me as their classmate yeah and, and sometimes that he was even coming from the professors often absolutely inevitably and I heard it from others like they would come out of class and say we were asked to justify this or how do you explain this and you're one against everybody and 
it's not that I was scared of that. I've been doing that throughout the whole of school and as doing it, you know, at events or as um, my role on the Islamic society, you know, people would come up to me and demand that I'm able to provide some kind of an answer, the most obscure aspect <laughs> of my faith. And I made sure that I knew yeah. about these things. I had an answer. You must have been exhausted. It is exhausting and the th- it is exhausting and I probably was exhausted, but I think there's a lot of energy you have at that age. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, you have zeal. There were people who were zealous in their partying. <laughs> getting drunk every Friday. <laughs> Only um, Friday? Not how I remember it. <laughs> yeah. No, that's true, actually. The waterfront was always busy. Um, and that was the name of the, the bar at King's. Student bar, yeah. <laughs> and um, there were people who were zealous in their sports. I enjoyed that too. But at that time, it was like, that's, for many of us, where do you direct your zeal? Um, and so it was, it was all of this, right? And so yeah. I think also what it did do was... As I said, there are those who were not Muslim who once the anti-war movement started to build up that we felt we had more solidarity on campus. We had a community that wasn't just us, but there were many friends that I made. And I think that was really heartening, even though it was otherwise a very difficult time. But there were many that just felt very estranged from, right? Because this was our life. Right. And it was... Um, you do often feel like you're in another world to other people, right? Yeah, because it's, there was this something, it was really serious. Mm. And I say that not as if, and Khadija will know, right? This does not mean that there was not joy and there was not laughter and there was not a lot of love and a lot of... Um, fun, right? Fun, yeah. There's all of that. And actually, I think sometimes when you're dealing with something, the gravity of the situation can sometimes intensify those moments of joy mm. because you appreciate it. It's precious. Just like as we were talking about friendships before, the friendships that you make in times like that, there's a very special bond. Absolutely. And it's the cement is, is so much stronger uh, because you've been through something huge together. But nevertheless, I, I think we had to be quite mature and we're dealing with really weighty issues, mm-hmm. actually, on a daily basis, mm-hmm. thinking about life and death issues. So that just meant I couldn't really relate to people where they were just at uni to have a good time. And I'm not even judging them. It just was how different right, our lives were. Yeah, and yeah. That Also, I found it strange, too, that we had the sense of you know, driven by this, the goals of justice mm. or trying to just keep our community afloat. And that's not to make it sound like we were saints. It's just it was imposed on us. Mm. Like, would we choose for that to happen to us? I don't think so. Mm. Um, but there are others that they could just go about their day without thinking about any of these things, ever. I honestly still get that sense a lot, like, these days. I don't think that's ever gone away. Well, it's it's the difference between somebody who's in survival mode and somebody who is not, and it's just living their life. And mm. when you're in survival mode, there are a lot of things that you cannot even make space for in your mind that are, like, completely consuming other people. And to you, you're like, this is so... It's so frivolous. It's so... Oh, that is absolutely right, Anissa. I agree with you. You know, and I yeah. I feel like this about, you know, what we're talking about now. I also felt that, you know, when I was going through like some really severe periods of illness, 
it's like you're living in a, another world. Like the wall between you is transparent. You can see other people, but you mm. can't relate to them. Mm. And I think that happens in intense periods of grief. It happens mm. during difficult periods of illness. It happens when you become like, we talked about it in one of our other episodes. You're like in this defensive crouch mm. and it's like this unnatural you know, like when you were talking about this experience that you had in your student union, like we call them MSAs over here and you mm-hmm. used to do like Islam awareness weeks. But it's like that experience of sitting in the hallway at a table and everyone who passes by their gaze on you and how you have to kind of have this public face and you have to be ready with answers and you have to deal with, you know, like when you described your experience at that fair, it just like brought all of that back to me. And I, Mm. yeah, it's really tiring. And like, I also was part of my like MSAs, we called the Mashura. Right, right. The committee, the organ, I guess the the central organizing committee. Yeah, The sort of the elected leadership. Yeah. And even like, I cannot imagine the kind of commitment it must have taken for you to make sure that somebody was always in the prayer room because we didn't do that. And we still were, you know, our studies were suffering. We were emotionally exhausted. We were, you know, just tired, physically tired because we weren't sleeping. So, yeah. And I think also we've, we've probably learned a lot more about that in more recent years, right? Where there's a more openness to talking about the impact that our external environments have on us, yeah. our ability to focus, anxiety, all sorts of psychological baggage that you're sort of trying to, to deal with. And I think that's what I, that's what I mean. I look back at that time and realize how young we all were and how we had to grow up pretty quickly and while still still retaining our sense of joy and laughter and love and fun and and really importantly seeing the good in other people mm-hmm. right because it can be very easy to be angry and bitter because this is none of our choosing and, and that's where I think Islam and our faith plays a huge role because if at any point you wanted to you wanted to just isolate yourself or you wanted to feel negative about society. How can you when there's verse after verse or hadith after hadith about our responsibilities to society? And none of you truly believes until you love for your brother or your sister what you love for yourself. The best kind of a, a character is the one who's, who's good to other people, who's useful towards other people, or even you know, removing a harmful thing from the road mm. right, is seen as a great form of, of charity, of sadaqah, that even a smile is a form of a sadaqah. And in the Quran, it's mentioned if somebody hurls abuse at you or is vitriolic towards you, if you respond with kind words, that you might be able to form some kind of a, a connection with them, right? Um, so that they become an ally. And there's so much there which is about not letting your very impulsive emotions to just take over in the way that you treat others. Mm-hmm. That's not to say that you bottle them up and you don't deal with them and you don't acknowledge that you're feeling certain emotions, but always to be just towards other people, to realize that what we're going through, we don't allow it to become vengeful in any way. Right? Like everything that you do is in some way you try to be instructed. Now that is hard and it is a huge responsibility to carry, especially at intense times like that. But I think that it allowed, certainly for me, I needed to be able to see good in people. It was so important to be able to because it was actually a way of being able to, to deal with everything and, and to not shelter yourself and, and not to feel bitter. But I think uh, the point about 
you know, when you're going to these events and feeling tired, it's, yeah, always being ready to speak. And sometimes, you know, you'd be in some kind of a talk and something would be said about Islam or something, the misconception would be conveyed in some way. And you'd always be, this is the time I'm going to stay quiet. This is the time I'm not going to say anything. It's not my turn. Someone else can do it. You always get, you know, a friend of mine like nudging Jasmine, you can say something. Come on, you need to say something. <laughs> or they start talking to someone and you're like, this person cannot answer this question. I need to <laughs> like jump in and yeah. yeah. Because you know that that person is gonna say something and, and, and it's just gonna turn into a disaster. Yeah. I never did that. I just like let them say their thing and then I'd have someone prodding me saying, Jasmine, you need to speak. So it was just yeah, it was and I was I used to write for a student newspaper so that was a way of channeling as well actually mm-hmm. um where the things that you can't say immediately or in uh, in spur of the moment you can at least expand on and in a way that you have more control over in writing and did that kind of lead you to what you ended up switching to when you did your phd like is that part of the reason that you started to you know look at post-colonial studies and Middle Eastern history? Like what was kind of the spur for you since you were doing something so different yeah. during undergrad? So initially I I did want to go into journalism. That was something that was from when I was at school, because as I mentioned before, it was there was no shortage of falsehoods and misconceptions <laughs> constantly put across in the media, not just about Muslims and Islam, but about so many things. And this is even before 9-11, right? Oh, definitely, yeah. That was not the starting point of all this at all in terms of the stigmas around the Muslim community. But like I said, it wasn't just about, oh, how do I defend Muslims at all? It was more a case of how can you be a voice for truth? And I know it sounds really idealistic, but when you're young, you're allowed to be idealistic. And what's wrong with that? And I think it's also good to try and retain that even when you get older, if you can. But what I was seeing, especially in the build-up to the Iraq War, where newspapers and the media were hugely complicit yes. in allowing that to happen. And I'm sure that was the case in the US, right? Recent, certainly, um, Khadija, remember, it was in the UK. Oh, it was like... It was like the state media. It was like the <laughs> newspapers were just another mouthpiece for whatever was coming out of the White House because the, they basically had told them, if you want access to us, you will say and not say what we want you to. And all of the mainstream news organizations just rolled over and said yes. There was, yeah, there was no chance. We had like a few independent media organizations, but like obviously they don't get a reach. They're seen as outliers. Yeah. And yeah, so there was just such a consensus amongst the media I think we had one press that stayed relatively neutral and another that did challenge but the rest of them were pretty much of supporting the cause of war and when I was would you mind that, naming thought, the names who went which way well all of them apart from I think the Guardian tried to stay balanced but not enough to do anything right there was not there's no critique mm. it was the the mirror they, so they attended the anti-war demos as well, and they had their placards. Oh, you're right. I remember. This is strange because for people who don't know, especially outside the UK, the Mirror is a tabloid. It's a tabloid, and do you and know wasn't it was? Piers Morgan the editor at that time? Oh my god! Yes, no way! Oh my god! <laughs> that wow! Is, yeah, it's <laughs> fascinating. But yeah, I remember being disgusted actually at the lack of more of a challenge mm-hmm. right, and a pushback coming from the media. They were so enthralled by Tony Blair. And that was a strategy from number 10, actually. Would you mind talking a little bit about how and why Tony Blair was able to take the country to war, first in Afghanistan, then in Iraq, and 
how the opposition to the war had no effect at all in the end. Tony Blair is, he was a consummate politician. That he was. He was incredibly charismatic as well. Yeah, you have them in politics and you have them everywhere, in every industry, every field. By that, I mean that they know how to network and they know how to say the right things to the right people and they know what words to use to make it persuasive. And he was also, his background was a lawyer. Mm. Oh, I didn't know that. Me neither. As a lawyer. So he he understood how to, to frame things, right, in a way that could win the argument. And there were, like we know, the 45-minute claim about Iraq being able to launch weapons of mass destruction against the UK or against you know, countries in Europe, which was an outright lie. So there was also just underhand tactics. That's what I mean, but it wasn't being pushed enough by the media. And also, he had been very successful and he had enacted some constructive domestic policies that won him a lot of support. So he had won, I think by 2001, that's right, he had come off the back of a really huge majority in the elections in the previous year. Interestingly, George W. Bush had won in what many (laughs) considered to be almost like an illegal victory. I mean, there was such a small margin of votes in the 2000 election Mm. that they had the Florida recount. I can like list, I can hear it in my mind right now. Like they were talking about it for weeks. It was like, I don't know, ridiculously small margin. And then I don't remember now if it went to the Supreme Court to vote on. But anyway, it was extremely close. So this was actually something that really boosted George W. Bush's profile, you know, right. to have like led the country through this crisis and to have, I mean, he became a war leader. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and the thing is, is that that lack of legitimacy that Bush had initially, um, some of which, which he would have clawed back after 9-11, because as you mentioned, that context. And he had a reputation for being a poor speaker, you know, only got the position because of his daddy, you know, like very, mm. that he was unintelligent. But I think also some of those negatives, having Tony Blair, who was known to be very smart, had this legitimacy, the popular electorate, the smooth talker by his side, mm-hmm. who was almost able to make the argument for war more palatable and more convincing. Yeah. He played a huge role. And also Colin Powell, his speech at the UN gave him so much mm. legitimacy that before people were like, oh, but then they're like, oh, if Colin Powell thinks it's a good idea. Yeah. Somebody who's usually considered to be measured and somebody who you know, reflects about his decisions, absolutely. Right. So those who are already, you know, warmongers, people don't necessarily, who are on the fence, will not pay much attention to what they say. But it's those that you'd usually expect to voice more um, of a critical view. Uh, when they come on board, it has much more of an impact. Mm. Um, so that's, I would say, that why, in a nutshell, I'm, I'm sure that they're historians of populist politics that could tell you more about it. But I just remember at the time really thinking Tony Blair is a dud job. He was able to tell He could convince you that good was bad and bad was good. It's true. Right. Yeah. Exactly. If you're if you're not Muslim, that basically translates to the Antichrist. <laughs> <laughs> or a purveyor of falsehood, right? Because obviously yeah. there are many, many Dajjal. Right, right. So, yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. But he, exactly as Khadija said, like, even though I disliked him and disagreed with him, I'd listened to him 
you know, in the House of Commons and be like, yeah, you know what? That was a really good speech. And you're convinced by him. Exactly. This is like, there's a gilded quality to his uh, speech, which is that you know he's lying to you. You know it. (laughs) While he's speaking to you, you know he's lying. Yet there's a part of you that really wants to believe it. There's a part of you that's absolutely convinced. I never felt that. This is interesting. I never felt like I wanted to believe him, but I I could grudgingly accept that everything he's saying is a lie, mm. but he, he did a really good job at making it persuasive. Yeah. He's definitely making it sound good. And everybody else here probably believes him. And I remember it was, you know, it's not just Tony Blair either. Mm-hmm. The Conservative Party, <laughs> they could have passed some kind of opposition, couldn't they? But no, they did not. Every single one of them pretty much voted in favour of the wall. So it's like they also share a lot of the blame. True. But it relates to the journalism thing. When I'm seeing the way in which none of this is being challenged by most of the news outlets, it made me wonder, like, not all of the journalists, surely not all of the journalists are okay with this. And I remember that when I was already starting to feel more hesitation about going into that field, and there was a graduate conference. So once, as soon as I finished my studies, uh, I think it was after the last exam, the London campuses organised this graduate fair conference on journalism. Had all of the media outlets that were there, and the major editors were there, and they selected you know a couple of hundred students um, to attend this. And this is after you finished your BA. Yeah, just shortly after, actually. So it's that weird space where you're thinking, what am I going to do with my life? <laughs> and so I attended this as a two-day conference, and I remember first of all, I was the only person in hijab. I mean, that sounds weird now because we've got so many more. Muslims and Muhajiba sisters, right, women who are entering into so multiple fields, which is brilliant. But really, when I say there was no one, I mean there was no one. And that was the case with so many things that I did in those years. Mm. And it's not that Muslim women wearing the hijab weren't doing brilliant things. But at the time, it tended to be in the sciences. Mm. Um, so if there were uh, Muslim women that were, or Muslims generally, that would sort of progress beyond their degree, it would be in the sciences. Or if there was a humanities subject, it would be law. Yeah. Right? So, as, a, as a Muslim woman who was also the only one in many of my humanities, like in undergrad and in grad school, I relate to this so much. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. So, you know, you got used to being the only one, but here I was in this conference and thinking, hmm, this could be a precursor to what it would be like in these newsrooms. Okay, fine. You know, we're kind of used to it. But I really clearly remember there was this panel session with these very prestigious editors and journalists. All of them were white, which my younger sister's a, a journalist, and she said you know, that would never happen today. They'd be so conscious about the representation and the optics and how it looks. And I remember asking at this plenary session a couple of questions. And it was really my way of testing. Let me see what their responses are. Like even how they answer this is going to be quite indicative for me. And I think one of the questions was, if, for example, um, a journalist was to challenge the editorial line, how much success would they have right? and how much agency? I didn't use the word agency. I think I said how much freedom would they have had to pursue their own view on something or they have to actually toe the editorial line? And secondly, what support or advice would you give to somebody a journalist who, even though they're trying to report objectively, everything that they say or they write is assumed to come from a particular perspective, i.e. the point I was trying to make that 
if somebody saw me as a Muslim brown woman with hijab reporting on whatever that's happening in the news, would they constantly question my objectivity and assume that that position is based on me being a Muslim or mm. you know, me coming from whatever background? And the answers to those questions were just terrible. There was no attempt to um, reassure me to even make it seem like they wanted people that would be willing to challenge or have some kind of independence. So the question about the editorial line is, well, pretty much you are expected to follow the editorial line. And again, everything connected to the Iraq war, that just made me think, well, does that mean that I will be complicit? Yeah. If, I, if that's my job yeah. and I end up having to actually write bylines and I'm going to end up being complicit in being a mouthpiece for the government, mm. can I live with that? And the, the other question was, they were useless except for one woman I can name her because I was you know she was really lovely um Angelique Christophus so at the time she was with the Guardian so she I think understood and got the point I was was trying to make Mm -hmm. in, in relation to my positionality so she wasn't able to speak too openly but she she said that it is very difficult and you just have to persevere and you just have to have the confidence that you know if you're good enough that's going to shine through and after she actually came up to me she was really supportive and said you know here's my business card and please get in touch and all so she made an effort but I thought I'm not convinced by that yeah even though she tried it's just there wasn't enough there to make me feel like this is a field that I would be that I want to be in. And that's why I have a lot of admiration for those that went into journalism at the time. So Mehdi Hassan, I think, is a, mm-hmm. he's a few years older than, than me, but and I know that he's he doesn't wear the hijab, so there's a whole <laughs> bunch of not at our level <laughs> but you know he he would have gone through a lot of that i'm sure yeah and i can appreciate yeah. it would have been and i don't think that everyone has to agree with him and people have a lot of problems yeah right so he might be in he might have been working in newsrooms as this was all unfolding mm-hmm. um I'm not saying we let's all agree with what he has to say. Mm. <laughs> Every opinion he has, I certainly don't. Mm. But I do at least have recognition and respect for having lived through that time, at, around about that age, what it might have been like for him in some of those newsrooms. Yeah. yeah. And and I think for the jur- the ones out of our community, and there are some journalists from our community, and some of them are also women who wear a job who mm. did go into journalism. I know that it wasn't easy and hopefully we're going to talk to someone actually <laughs> who is who's done that. Um, but mm. my impression from friends and acquaintances who are in journalism is that those two questions that you asked are still just as relevant today, especially, I mean, mm. I don't know if it's really changed or gotten better in the UK, but in the US, those are definitely big issues even now. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. And I think what in, in every field can change is that if you have more people from minority backgrounds in the field, mm-hmm. even though it doesn't change the system, it makes it survivable. Sheer weight of numbers. Yeah. And you have people that can mentor you and give you advice that can say, look, I've been through that. This is how I dealt with it. And just for those coming through, being able to see that it is possible to exist looking the way you look coming from the background you come from in this space. And the thing is, I didn't see that in journalism, but I didn't see that in academia either. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that begs the question. Like, why I, I was going to say, you did go into academia, right? which uh, talking about being the only one, <laughs> let me tell you. 
You know, when I say this as well, I'm not saying that there was no Muslim woman in hijab anywhere in any department in humanities, social sciences. All I'm saying is that I didn't know them mm. in the UK. Like I was mm. not meeting them, not in IR, certainly. And so like I remember there was a Muslim woman who was a PhD student in chemistry when I was at King's. And we really loved her. And she'd come to the prayer room. She was like our wise older sister. Oh. And I was in a lot of awe of her. She's a very sweet person. But the type of work that she was doing, she was doing lab work. Mm. And it was... It's a different thing, right? Khadija, you did science, right? So mm-hmm. um, having just delivered a, a session on this to people that came from multiple disciplines, it was interesting that the scientists were saying they have other issues and mm. problems, I'm sure. But that wasn't one of them, yeah. Right. right. So the issue, the questioning of your objectivity yeah. and the really annoying and sometimes violent types of questions and assumptions yeah. that are made, um, they just leave that at the door. You're definitely much more protected in science because like a lot of the things that you're describing, I actually didn't go through that. Like I started uni in 2002, which was the year after, and I was in sciences and my cohorts were just very brown people heavy because, you know, it was sciences, it was the medical school. Yeah. And yeah. so in that sense, there was a kind of the the safety in numbers and just it didn't come up because you're busy, yeah. you know, in, in labs and doing, you know, microbiology and all of that kind of stuff. You can detach yourself, right? And your work. Yeah. Like it sort of does create a kind of dome of safety in the study space that you're in Mm -hmm. that you just like you can choose to engage in that topic or not because no one else Mm -hmm. is. That's nobody's concerned with that until you sort of try to move outside of university life, at least on that campus. That's not to say that they don't have. So I was speaking to somebody who um, recently finished her PhD she's in the sciences and she said there were so many microaggressions in the lab yes and so many it was racist incidents there yeah but it wasn't in terms of the the ideas right mm. the substance of the conversation it was just right. mistreatment you weren't constantly ideologically besieged not the way mm. that i imagine you must have been in humanities well yeah because in the humanities you're being asked to like critically look mm-hmm. at the foundations of how we create knowledge yeah and mm. you're being asked to be critical of it but only in the way that they want you to right. be critical of it and if mm. you start being critical of it in a different way that makes them uncomfortable or that pushes against those boundaries of like who's supposed you know supposedly neutral and who's supposedly superior and we don't really talk about it then that that becomes an issue absolutely and there's that sense of sometimes it's unspoken right is that yeah. it's unspoken the reason why i know it exists is because some of them let it out at some point that especially if you walk into that space and you're visibly mm. expressing your faith yes right? so if someone's not wearing a hijab, they perhaps don't have to at any point to mention that they're a Muslim mm. or have any faith. I think it doesn't just relate to Muslims. It can be it can be something that people of other faiths can feel too. But if you walk in there with a hijab, there's this sense of we need you to be rational and objective. And you can't even be rational about whether you're going to free yourself from this oppressive faith that's making you cover up. Now, how can we trust anything else that you say you're doing in this field? Yeah. And the reason why it might seem like, oh, you're being presumptuous about this. No, I'm not, because some people would let it slip. But that's kind of what they were thinking. Um, so I don't think I answered your question about why I went to academia, <laughs> but I totally don't mind. <laughs> I'm having fun. <laughs> where we're going to leave you hanging. 
The reason why Jasmine entered academia is a story worth waiting for, and it deserves to be at the top of the episode, so please look forward to it next time. Since we interviewed her, Jasmine has just published an article that she's been working on throughout the pandemic period, where she discusses how Europe's militarism is rooted in race and the racialization of Islam. It's very relevant, readable, and best of all, open access, so go on over and check it out. We've dropped the link in the description. You can find all of her other work on her blog at jasminekghani.wordpress.com. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at MIPSPOD, that's M-I-P-S-P-O-D, and you can email us at musliminplainsight at gmail.com. We warmly welcome your stories, comments, and any other thoughts and feedback. And that's all for now. Jazakumullahu khair for listening. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.